All right, guys, good to see you tonight. Praise the Lord. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 8? Daniel 8. Now, as we've already pointed out, from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, the book of Daniel is written in the Aramaic because the emphasis in those chapters is on the Gentile kingdoms of the world in history and in prophecy. But now starting in chapter 8 and running through the end of the book, the text is in Hebrew because the emphasis of these chapters is on God's plan for the nation of Israel in the end times. So let's start with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and uh, it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the, uh, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. The year is 551 B.C. Shushan, otherwise known as Susa, was located 230 miles east of Babylon in modern-day Iraq. Now, Elam was the name of the province where Susa was located, where Daniel was taken in his vision. Not necessarily there, taken there physically, obviously, but transported in this vision, and he sees this area, which he's describing, uh, when Medo-Persia overthrew Babylon, Susa became the capital of the Persian Empire. Eighty years after Daniel had this vision, Susa became Esther's home. And 107 years after that, it was the city from which Nehemiah departed to return to Jerusalem, as recorded in Esther chapter 1, verse 2, uh, and Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Citadel simply is the palace. Uh, the royal residence, a place that had strong fortifications was a fortress because the king spent a lot of time there, obviously, so they wanted to make it a fortified place. That's why it's called the citadel. Verse 3, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. The ram here represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Media came to power or prominence first. Uh, Persia came later, but eventually eclipsed Media as the dominant power, the meaning of the one horn higher than the other, uh, which came up last. Persia uh, was, was last to, uh, you know, to be joined to Media. They were the dominant power f at first, but then Persia arose in power, which is what the uh, prophecy is saying. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. It says here that this ram went west, westward, then northward, then southward, but not east. Guys, those are the directions the Medo-Persians marched against their enemies, and in exactly that order. Now, concerning the two animals that Daniel sees in his vision, as recorded in chapter 8, the ram and goat, 
we don't have to speculate um, as to what they represent because verses 20 and 21, uh, they tell us. So verse 20, the uh, angel is describing to Daniel what this, what's going on. He says, The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, the guardian spirit of the Persian Empire appears in history under the form of a ram with cloven feet and pointed horns. Uh, one author says, one historian said, the ram was the national emblem of Persia, a ram being stamped on Persian coins as well as on the headdress of Persian emperors. End quote. In fact, before going out to battle, a Persian king would always stand before the army wearing the head of a ram instead of a crown. They associated with the ram. Verse 5, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the east, excuse me, uh, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Now, as we've already seen in verse 21, the male goat here represents the Grecian Empire. The first Greek colony was established by an oracle uh, that sent a goat as a guide to show them where to build a city. And uh, history says that the goat came to the region of Greece, and in gratitude for the goats leading them uh, in the right direction, they called the city Aegi, which means the goat city. And uh, the name of the sea upon whose shores the city was built was called the Aegean Sea or the Goat Sea. It says the, a male goat came from the west. That was exactly the direction Greece came from to attack Medo-Persia. Alexander the Great, who was the notable horn between its eyes. See that in verse 5 there? Uh, he conquered, and some of this is review, because these chapters, some of them uh, include the same stuff we've studied. So forgive me if you've heard me explain this. We have new people that weren't here maybe when we first talked about this. But uh, Alexander the Great, the notable horn uh, between its eyes, uh, the uh, goat's eyes, uh, conquered the entire known world in 12 years. Conquered the entire known world in 12 years. Alexander was a brilliant strategist who developed a battle strategy that was so successful it was eventually copied by the Romans. It was called the Wedge. You can Google that and uh, check it out if you're interested. Uh, brilliant military strategy. He never lost a, war, a, a battle. And Rome was so impressed they eventually adopted this strategy themselves. Now, after he, after he had conquered the known world, he asked his generals if they knew of any other nations he could conquer. And when they said no, he fell on his bed and wept because there was nothing more left to conquer. He was a conqueror. So at this point, he's 29 years old. Again, we read a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth, listen, without touching the ground. This speaks of the speed at which Greece came against the Persians. Uh, Daniel describes it coming so fast that the feet of the goat didn't even touch the ground in his vision. Uh, Alexander the Great conquered the entire Persian Empire in less than three years. That was pretty quick. They were the world-dominant power, and he conquered them in less than three years. Verse 6, Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and, the, and ran at him with furious power. 
and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. History records that Alexander hated the Persians with a passion. He didn't want to just beat them. He wanted to trample them in the dust, which he eventually did, as verse 7 predicted he would. When you realize, guys, now, you know, a lot of these chapters now, and chapter 11 is off the chart, uh, detailed of history. We, what we call history was future to them. When we read these um, chapters that give us a look into the future from, of course, where Daniel was, and you see the specificity that these things are presented with, the future events, uh, you're not going to remember a lot of the history, maybe, but one thing you should never forget is how, how incredible God's Word is. 27% of the Bible is full of prophecy. Again, I've, we've mentioned this. God said, I'm going to tell you things before they happen. Only I know the end from the beginning, and I'm going to tell you future things so that you know that when these things come to pass, you know that I'm God, because I'm not guessing. I know the future, and that this book is my word. So that they are, when you realize that Daniel has this vision, while Babylon, the Babylonian Empire was still in power before the Medo-Persian Empire rose to world dominance and over 200 years before Greece uh, came to power, when you consider all of this and then you look back at history, you realize how incredibly accurate this vision was, which is no surprise because God gave it to Daniel. But when you're a skeptic or an unbeliever, like the liberals, they, they can't handle this. They, they freak out. Because in their mind, nobody can predict the future. So therefore, Daniel didn't write this looking into the future. He was somebody that called themselves Daniel wrote this uh, at around the 2nd century B.C. after everything had taken place. And he was just writing out history. It's just too specific. I mean, it's impossible for people to know what's coming in the future. It was not impossible for God, who gave Daniel this vision. So, you know, but um, amazing, you know, amazing. Uh, verse 8, Therefore the male goat grew very, grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place, uh, and in place of it, four notable ones came up, four horns came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, as we've already talked about, Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C., just shy of his 33rd birthday. He is the large horn that was broken in verse 8. At the ripe old age of 21, he was considered to be the most powerful and brilliant military leader in the world. In fact, many historians still consider him to be the greatest leader that ever lived, the greatest military leader that ever lived. One author adds an important footnote, okay? Talking about the male goat that grew very great from verse 8, he said, The greatness of Alexander's empire was not only in its vast dominion, but also in its cultural power. Alexander the Great was determined to spread Greek civilization, culture, and language across every land that he conquered. As God guided history, he used Alexander's passion to spread Greek culture to prepare the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
because of Alexander's influence, Koine Greek, Koine means common, common Greek became the common language of the civilized world and the language of the New Testament, end quote. Why did God choose to write the New Testament in Koine Greek? Because if you've ever studied Greek, it's a very specific language where we might have two or three words to describe something. They have like 15 or 20. And, and, and to write the New Testament in Greek, which is very specific, God did it because it would keep misinterpretations of his word to a minimum. He was being as specific and detailed as he could possibly be when he communicated the very important truths of the New Testament. He wanted there to be as little room for error in reading and, and, uh, and uh, interpreting his word as possible. Now, of course, there's always going to be people that read into the Bible what they want it to say. But an honest student of the word, Greek was the language. Um, you couldn't get a better language to write the New Testament and to keep misinterpretations of what God said to a minimum. Now, <clears throat> after Alexander uh, conquered the known world, because, as I said, he lived for conquest, and there was nothing left to conquer, he became depressed and started drinking heavily. We've talked about this. After a drunken party, he staggered home in the pouring rain, falls asleep on his bed uh, in his wet clothes, catches pneumonia, pneumonia, and in a few days he dies. Before he died, those attending him asked him who he wanted to give the kingdom to. It's reported that he said, give it to the strong. Alexander didn't divide the empire among his four generals himself. His four leading generals divided, divided it among themselves by force after his death. They are the four notable horns that replaced the big horn that was uh, broken. The four no notable horns that rose up in place of that big horn. The big horn was Alexander. But these four notable horns of verse 8 were the four generals that took over the um, Greek empire. Broken into four pieces. Cassander... Uh, who ruled over Macedon and Greece, Lysimachus, who ruled over Thrace and Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, uh, Seleucus I, who ruled over Syria and parts of Israel, and uh, Ptolemy I, who ruled over Egypt and parts of Israel. Verse 9, And out of one of them came a little horn. Now, Greece is broken into four parts. Out of one of these four parts arises a little horn who grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now guys, in verses 9 to 14, we have introduced to us a little horn. And some wonder if the little horn of chapter 8 is the same little horn we saw in chapter 7. And the answer is no, they're not. Not the same. The reason we know they're not the same is because the little horn of chapter 7 came up during the time of the Fourth World Empire, Whereas the little horn in chapter 8 comes up uh, from the third world empire, the Grecian empire. And we read again, and out of one of them came a little horn. We know from history that this little horn, this leader actually, uh, came up from the uh, Seleucid empire, which was Syria. And his name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was the eighth king in the Seleucid dynasty, he reigned from 175 to 164 BC. He is a type of the Antichrist, which is why he is referred to as a little horn, 
but was not the little horn of chapter 7, who is the Antichrist? Antiochus lived and died before Jesus Christ was born, and Jesus talked of um, the Antichrist in Matthew 24, uh, which meant that uh, by this time Antiochus was, was dead and gone, uh, but another was going to arise that Antiochus was a foreshadow or a type of that ultimate leader, which would mimic much of what Antiochus did, as we're going to see tonight, especially to the Jewish people would be the Antichrist, a future leader yet, as I said, coming. Now, we are told that this little horn, the one that grew up out of the, uh, the one of the parts of the Grecian Empire, uh, this little horn grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The term glorious land is used in the Old Testament to represent the land of Israel. You can read about these on your own, Ezekiel 20, verse 6, calls Israel the glory of all lands. Ezekiel 25, verse 9, calls Israel the glory of the country, etc. You get the idea. Verse 10. And it, this little horn, grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, and an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, guys, the language here doesn't quite fit Antiochus' epiphanies, which is why so many people think the Antichrist is in view here. Again, Antiochus being a type of the Antichrist, but sometimes in prophecy it'll scope out into the future, which we'll see in a moment, and be talking about an ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. But here's the thing. I actually believe what's in view here is the same thing that was in view in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 15. Why don't you turn there? I'll show you what I mean. As we look at Ezekiel 28... It might help you as you're reading your Bible and you're reading prophecy. And it's talking about someone. But then all of a sudden the language seems to transcend the person it's talking about. That's a common thing that the Holy Spirit will do. Let me show you out of Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 11. And, and remember now, we're applying this back to Daniel chapter 8, uh, verses 10 to 12. The language being about Antiochus, and yet kind of goes beyond him. Well, let's look at Ezekiel 28, starting with verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. All right, the king of Tyre. Tyre was a nation just to the north of Israel. All right, they had a king. So take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, i got to tell you, folks, I don't think the king of Tyre was ever in the garden of Eden. So obviously the language is transcending, right? The king of Tyre. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. 
The workmanship of, workmanship of your timbrels and pipes, speaking of this person's voice, was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub. Now, wait a minute. A cherub is the highest form of an angel. The king of Tyre was a cherub? I don't think so. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Obviously, guys, the prophet is uh, talking about not the king of Tyre per se, but the, the spiritual entity that was controlling the king of Tyre. In this case, it was the devil himself, Satan, Lucifer, all right? We know that there are demons um, ab above na the nations of the world. They're called princi principalities, powers, thrones, and dominions in the New Testament. Those are rankings of angelic beings. These are, there are rankings of fallen angels, and there are rankings of good angels, God angels, God's angels. Uh, Michael, the archangel, arch is a word in the Greek that means ruling. Uh, he's a ruling angel. He's one of the top guys, Okay. But there is a demon, uh, a spirit above all the nations of the earth. And we're going to see this clearly in chapter 10. So I'm not going to go any further with it right now. But it's obvious that God was addressing not the king of Tyre himself, but the devil behind the king of Tyre, pulling the strings. I believe the same is true in Daniel chapter 8, verses 10 to 12. I believe that it's it, Antiochus Epiphanes is the focus, but really... Who, who is behind Antiochus? Well, that's the devil, or at least a very powerful demon. Why do I say that? Because any person or nation, whether it's a Hitler or an Antiochus Epiphanes, that persecutes God's people, the Jews, the way certain people have done that over the centuries, they are being controlled, if not in the embodiment of Satan himself. Well, when you, you hear tonight what Antiochus Epiphanes did to God's people, you tell me that Satan wasn't directly involved with this man's life, just like Hitler. Just so you kind of have that little, kind of to work from. But verse 10 once again says, it grew up to the host of heaven. Again, Antiochus, but um, language kind of going beyond him. It grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Guys, Antiochus Epiphanes murdered other rulers and persecuted the people of Israel, which is, which is what is meant by cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trample them. The uh, host and stars are uh, symbols used in the Old Testament for angels, kings, leaders, but also for the people of God in general, the Jews. One author said, and I quote, Undoubtedly, it is the design here to describe the pride and ambition of the little horn and Tychus, and to show that he did not think anything too exalted for his aspiration. This guy had quite an ego, as we're going to see. And it says, and, and trample them, okay? Cast the hosts and stars to the ground and trample them. Antiochus was infamous, an infamous persecutor of the Jewish people. He wanted them to submit to Greek culture and customs. And listen. He was more than willing to use murder and violence to compel them. He slaughtered thousands of Jewish men, 
sold many of their wives uh, and children into slavery, and tried to completely obliviate the uh, Jewish religion. Once again, his name was Antiochus IV. He took for himself the title of Epiphanes. Epiphanes, mean, Epiphanes means the manifest God. So he calls himself Antiochus, the manifestation of God. All right? The Jews, though, had a nickname for him. I'm sure they didn't call him to his face. They called him Antiochus Epimenes. Uh, Epimenes means the madman. So Antiochus, the, he says, here I am, Antiochus, the manifestation of God. No, no, there's Antiochus, the madman, all right? Now, after the division of the Greek Empire into four parts, as we just saw earlier, two of the parts became very important, biblically speaking, which is why the chapter focuses on Syria and on, see, here's the thing. We just said that Greek, the, the Greek Empire broke into four parts. The two of the parts became uh, very important, biblically speaking. Syria to the north, which is, was the uh, Seleucid dynasty, and Egypt to the south, the Ptolemaic dynasty. Uh, these two dynasties, Syria and Egypt, began to fight each other. And guess what nation they had to march through to get to each other? Israel. And guys, this went on for 118 years. Whatever side was victorious, and it shifted back and forth, by the way, so who was ever victorious at that time, well, Israel fell under subjection to that kingdom. And as I said, this went back and forth until Antiochus IV came to power. Uh, one author had this to say about this man. He said, and I quote, Antiochus IV was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty, which was itself one of the four powers into which the Greek empire was divided after the death of Alexander. We just talked about that. Daniel describes him as being wicked and a master of intrigue in verse 23, and this is exactly what he was. He began by usurping the throne from his nephew, the son of his older brother, Seleucus uh, IV, and immediately after he had launched a campaign, uh, and immediately after that, he launched a campaign of ruthless conquest in the Near East. In 170 to 169 BC, he invaded Egypt. In Jerusalem, he tried to impose uh, religious and cultural uniformity by suppressing Jewish worship. Already in 175 BC, at the beginning of his reign, he had expelled the godly high priest Onias III and had replaced him with Onias's Hellenizing younger brother, Jason. Hellenizing was the process by which you went into an area and you transformed it into a Greek province, basically where you, uh, you indoctrinated them in Greek language, culture, uh, religion, and so on. The idea, that was what's, what Hellenizing meant. You were turning them Greek. And Antiochus, being Greek, uh, and believing that the Greek culture was the greatest culture in the history of the world, everywhere he conquered, uh, like Alexander, he wanted to transform that area into a Greek-speaking you know, area, Greek culture, and so on. And so he took a godly high priest, Onias III, who was the rightful Jewish high priest, removed him from office, stuck in his brother Jason, who wanted to promote uh, Hellenism across uh, the, the uh, area, which Israel was the target at this point. Now, he, he put an end to the daily, this is Antiochus, he put an end to the daily sacrifices at the temple, 
forbade the circumcision of Jewish infants and made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures. Let me just stop there. It all came to a head, though. He was persecuting the Jews like crazy. It all came to a head starting at around 171. In 171 B.C., guys, he goes down to Egypt to make war with them. Remember, I told you, they were always fighting. So in 171, he decides to go down to Egypt and fight with them once again. And as, and as he's on the verge of defeating the Egyptians, he receives a message from the Roman Senate telling him to break off his attack and withdraw from the battle. You see, Rome was on the threshold of world dominance. And they feared that if Antiochus was successful in beating the Egyptians, their combined military strength, Syria and Egypt, could uh, have been a hindrance to Rome becoming the next world empire. And so the Roman Senate, which was monitoring this whole thing, um, tells him to withdraw from his attack, and if he refused to do so, to prepare to go to war with Rome also. Well, Antiochus knew he was no match for Rome. So in absolute frustration, he breaks off the attack, even though he's on the verge of victory. You can imagine, this guy didn't take, you know, uh, disappointment well. Okay, he's on the verge of victory, and Rome says, get out of here. Break off the attack off. He has no choice. He's so furious that as he marches home from Egypt, he decides to take some of his frustration and anger out on Israel. He's got to march through them to get home. Why not beat up the Jews for a while? You know, made them feel better. So he viciously persecuted the Jewish people for several years. But listen, all hell really broke loose in 168 B.C. In that year, history records that on December 25th, Antiochus Epiphanes marched into Jerusalem um, to the temple, and he has the high priest killed, and then slaughters a pig, the ultimate unclean animal, on the altar of sacrifice, desecrating it. He, erect, he then he erected an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, which was an abomination that caused the desolation of the temple. In other words, this abomination of desolation is spoken of in Daniel and in Matthew 24 by Jesus. This abomination of desolation rendered the temple desecrated and unusable in the worship or for the worship of God. This so infuriated Jewish uh, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers. They were a priestly family from the tribe of Levi, of course. And this was the last straw. I mean, they had been suffering with Syrian aggression for years. But when uh, Antiochus did this, that was the last straw. Uh, Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, probably a pretty tough guy, uh, organizes a revolt with, along with his brothers and many others. It eventually came to be known as the Maccabean Revolt. And three years later, miraculously, miraculously, three years later, they defeated the Syrians and won their independence. You can read about this in the apocryphal books. Apocrypha just means it's not inspired by God, but they have historical value. You can read about these, uh, this, uh, these events in uh, First and Second Maccabees. And then on December 25th, 165 B.C., exactly three years after the temple was desecrated, it was rededicated. It was rededicated. Now, here's the thing. Jewish law says once the menorah was lit, it wasn't supposed to go out. They only found, tradition says, they only found one cruise of sanctified oil in the temple area. 
That was only supposed to last for a day. But by faith, tradition says they lit the menorah, and it would take a week to consecrate more oil, and miraculously, the cruise of oil that should only have burned for a day burned for eight days. And this gave rise to the Jewish feast of dedication, or Hanukkah, which is called the Festival of Lights, which is even mentioned in the New Testament, John chapter 10, verse 22, talks about a feast in the winter, and there was no feast in the winter of Mosaic feasts. This had to be the Feast of Dedication. This was an incredible feast, which they rededicated the temple, miraculous time. Uh, we, the Jews still celebrate Hanukkah to this day, obviously, and... Um, so that's a little bit of the background uh, from what we read, though, in Daniel of how this was going to play out in history. Uh, back to Daniel 8. Let's pick it up in verse 10 again. And it grew up, again, talking about Antiochus, uh, to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exhausted, or excuse me, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Well, for a while. Evil will prosper for a while. Eventually God will take care of it. Antiochus Epiphanes blasphemed God and commanded idolatrous worship directed toward himself, is what is the fulfillment of verse 11, exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Antiochus Epiphanes put a stop to temple sacrifice, sacrifices in Jerusalem, a fulfillment of, again, verse 11, the words by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, again, a fulfillment of, of what was spoken here in verse 11, the place of his sanctuary, God's sanctuary, was cast down. Antiochus Epiphanes opposed God and seemed to prosper. A fulfillment of what was spoken of in verse 12, he cast truth down to the ground, he did all this and prospered. Uh, pastor and author David Jeremiah said, and I quote, diabolical arrogance was his nature, Antiochus. After trying to conquer the world and being stopped by the Roman armies, he turned his fury on Jerusalem and sacked the city. He killed some 80,000 Jews and sold another 40,000 into slavery. To kill the Jews was one thing, but to destroy their faith was another. Antiochus decided to substitute Greek worship and culture for the, religious, for the Jewish religion. Instead of the Jewish feast of the tabernacles, he uh, brought into the temple the feast of Bacchanalia, Worshipping Bacchus, which was the god of pleasure and wine, the god of drunkenness, basically. He forbade the observance of the Sabbath and the reading of the scriptures, even burning every copy of the Torah he could find. The Jews in the city were forbidden to practice anything Jewish on penalty of death, end quote. This guy was brutal to the Jewish people. Guys, all of this foreshadows what the Antichrist will do when he rises to power. Turn to Matthew 24.
Years ago, when I first became a Christian, and I really cut my teeth on prophecy because that's, I'm very grateful to have a pastor. And I got connected to certain teachers that were very big into prophecy and taught me um, prophetic things in the Bible. And of course, being new Christians, we wanted to get some Bibles and wanted to get some commentary. So we found the only Christian bookstore in the area at that time and got to talking to the owner, who's a believer, of course. And uh, we're talking about um, what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. I told, I told him that this was a prophecy of the Antichrist, to which he responded, no, 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 that was a prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes. I said, sir, Antiochus Epiphanes died in 163 B.C. You know, I mean, Jesus is talking about a leader who has not even arisen yet. And he looked at me like, oh, never thought about that. You know, a lot of churches just don't teach prophecy. People are ignorant. They don't know. They've heard a few things, but they really haven't been taught prophecy. I said one quarter of the Bible, 27% of the Bible is prophecy. We need to know, Jesus held the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, responsible because they didn't know prophecy. You didn't know the day of your visitation. That was prophesied by Daniel in chapter 9. We'll get to that starting next week. Because you didn't know the day of your visitation, because you didn't know prophecy, well, you're going to be judged. We know the Romans would come 38 years later and destroy the city. And destroy the temple. He told the Pharisees at one point, he said, you know, you guys can look outside and look at the sky and say, well, uh, there's a red sky tonight, it's going to be a nice day tomorrow. Or in the morning you look and see a red sky, you say a storm is coming. You hypocrites. You can discern the signs of the weather by looking at the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of my coming, even though it's plainly given to you in your own scriptures. So, Jesus is taking the whole Antiochus Epiphanes thing and basically saying Antiochus was a foreshadowing of another leader. You think he was bad? Antiochus? You haven't seen nothing yet. This leader will make what Antiochus did look like child's play. You're going to see this leader set up another abomination of desolation, just like Daniel spoke about. They'll be standing in the holy place. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. And again, I'm going to have to exercise great restraint. Because we will get to other passages later on where I want to develop some of this a little more. But I, I have to just really restrain myself. It's hard to do. I'm, uh, I tend to just say everything on my mind and then, you know. But anyway, what is this abomination of desolation? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now he's talking about the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, 
showing himself that he is God. This is a future abomination of desolation. Revelation chapters 13 and 14 tells us that the Antichrist will slaughter anyone who dares to worship the God of heaven and not worship the image of himself that he sets up in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Back to Daniel 8, verse 13. Then I heard Daniel said, a holy one speaking, and another holy one. These are angels, okay? Another holy one said to the, that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, uh, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, Daniel didn't, didn't really ask this question. One angel asked another angel, you know, basically, what are these things going to be? How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled on? How long is it going to be? Now, I personally don't think the angel was looking for information. I, I think he asked this question for Daniel's benefit. It was a question Daniel didn't think about asking. So the angel says, hey, how long is it going to be? You know, just so Daniel knows what, what's going to happen, okay? But uh, the angel basically says, you know, uh, how long, uh, you know, he, he, he wanted to know how long the sacrifices would be suspended and how long the sanctuary would be desecrated. Well, the answer is given in verse 14, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, look, you're gonna, if you, if you go, dig this out on your own, you're going to find different um, explanations for this 2,300 days. Some believe it's not 2,300 days, it's half of that, uh, for reasons I'm not going to get into. Um, but the 2,300 days, this is the best explanation I've, I've come up with, as I've read all these commentators. The 2,300 days began in 171 B.C. with the murder of Onias the third, the legitimate high priest in Israel. You can't have sacrifices given to God that are acceptable if the high priest has been taken out of office. Once Antiochus um, killed Onias, uh, Antiochus then established a pseudo-line of priests. From when he killed, though, listen, the legitimate high priest to the cleansing and rededication of the temple after the Maccabean revolt was about 2,300 days. Now, there's a popular but tragic footnote to the prophecy given in verses 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 8. Way back in the 1800s, William Miller, who was a Baptist preacher, read this and interpreted the, the 2,300 days to really mean 2,300 years. Why do people do that? Unless God specifically is, you know, God says it's 2,300 days, Okay. But he said, no, it's really 2,300 years. And he began preaching that this prophecy in Daniel actually predicted the day that Jesus would return to the earth. His followers were known as Millerites. Millerites. He calculated that if you add 2,300 years to the year Cyrus issued the decree. <laughs> you know, it's always if you take a guy's height times his collar size uh, plus the number of people in his, you know, it's, that's the Antichrist. Okay, well, you know, people do these things, okay? But he calculated 
that if you add 2,300 years to the year Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild the temple, which was around 539 B.C., it tells us that Jesus will return to the earth in the year 1844, and in particular on October 22nd of 1844. They had some ways why they figured out it was October 22nd. And so in Illinois, these people sold their farms, gave away all their possessions, put on white robes, went up on top of a hill and started singing hymns as they waited for the Lord's return. Uh, after about a week, uh, when Jesus didn't come, they became discouraged and many of them turned against the Lord. Why do people turn against the Lord? Because some nut job, uh, you know, uh, twist the scriptures, you know. I mean, why, why do people turn against the Lord? But listen, one of William Miller's disciples was Ellen G. White, who said what happened was that the Lord went into a heavenly sanctuary and cleansed it. And so she became the prophetess of a brand new religious movement known as the Seven-Day Adventists. Miller's movement also ended up giving birth to the Jehovah's Witnesses and several other heretical groups. I just throw that out in case it comes up in a trivia game, Bible game. <laughs> Remember, you heard it here first. Another useless factoid, but I love throwing them out, okay? All right, back to Daniel 8, verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Wow, Gabriel, uh, he's a big hitter, okay? So, yeah, it wasn't Herman, you know, the little grunt angel, you know. Uh, it was Gabriel, right? This is important stuff, okay? So, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, I would imagine. I mean, looking at Gabriel, you're looking at a pretty formidable-looking being. And I fell on my face, but he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at that appointed time, the end shall be. Now, is this time of the end, verse 17, and the latter time of the indignation, verse 19, uh, do these terms refer to the end of the indignation under, the, under Antiochus Epiphanes or to the end of the indignation at the time of the Antichrist? Well, hold on to that. Let's continue to read a little farther. Verse 20, Gabriel says, The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. That would be Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four horns that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So these four uh, nations that come out of the Greek Empire are not going to be as strong as the original Greek Empire, of course. Verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister 
schemes. And so, guys, this is in the latter time of their kingdom, the Greek Empire, a king will arise. This is speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, who once again is a type of the Antichrist. Verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. See, this guy is going to be back. Well, he was. This guy was backed by the devil, you know, backed by the devil. Uh, because the devil used him to persecute the Jews like few others have done in history. So, you know, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people through his cunning. He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And once again, guys, the language of the prophecy seems to go beyond Antiochus and telescopes way into the future to the time of the Antichrist, which in some ways, this what... Gabriel is explained to Daniel in chapter 8 here, verses 24 and 5, seems to go beyond Antiochus all the way down into the future and ultimately will have its fulfillment uh, with the Antichrist, uh, which seems to be prophetic of what we read in Revelation 19. So if you turn there quickly. Because really... Verses 24 and 5 talk about, well, Antiochus, how he's going to be very powerful. He's going to destroy people. He's going to persecute the people of God. He'll be a very cunning, deceitful person. Uh, he'll exalt himself in his heart. Um, he'll destroy many in their prosperity, even exalt himself above the prince of princes, and he shall be broken without human means, or he will die without uh, being, well, let's just read Revelation 19 starting with verse 19 first. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. That would be us. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. The beast, of course, is the Antichrist. The Antichrist was captured, and the false prophet who worked signs or miracles in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake, burning, uh, lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Look, once again, Antiochus called himself the manifestation of God. He wanted everyone to worship him as God. Listen, you may not realize this. He saw himself as the incarnation of Zeus, the greatest of all Greek gods. And which is why he placed a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem and demanded the Jews to worship him. That's what that was all about. And this is the meaning behind, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. Daniel 8, verse 25 Guys, this is a reference to how Antiochus sought to be worshipped in place of the God of Israel, in particular, in place of the prince of princes. Who would that be? Jesus. But in so doing, he becomes a type of the Antichrist. Understand something. The word anti, antichrist, the word anti 
uh, is a Greek um, word that could either mean against or in the place of. A lot of people don't realize that. They think anti-Christ means anti-religion. He's going to be anti-religion, anti-Christ Christianity. Well, here, the anti-Christ won't be against religion or even against the concept of the Christ. He will want to be worshipped as the Christ in the place of the real Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to be a man who is against religion. He is going to be a man who promotes a religion where he is worshipped as God. Okay? Verse 25, Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. Antiochus Epiphanes died, listen, not at the hands of men, not, not in battle, but by a loathsome disease that God struck him with. As I read the accounts of how he died, I believe he uh, was struck with some kind of a flesh-eating disease. He died in agonizing pain, took a while for him to die, and they said the smell from his own body was so gross, well, he was being eaten alive. Uh, decaying as he was, this bacteria was eating away his body. But listen, he didn't die by the hands of a human, by men. He was killed by God. The same way the Antichrist is not going to die at the hands of men either. Revelation 19, verse 20 says, He is cast alive by the Lord Jesus Christ into the lake of fire. So God, again, destroys the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel 8, the Antichrist. Uh, just as God destroyed Antiochus, the type, he destroys the Antichrist, the fulfillment. All right, verses 26 and 7. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which uh, was told is true. Therefore, now Gabriel is telling this to Daniel. And this is, guys, look. And I'll just throw this out to you because I know I kind of robbed you of, you know, maybe you're thinking, what do you mean? When the angel said 2,300 days, uh, I guess the Hebrew is actually 2,300 uh, mornings and evenings. And that was to be the, the idea of morning and evening sacrifices, which would have constituted morning and evening one day. So instead of 2,300 days, 2,300 mornings and evenings, which was 1,100 and what, 50 days, something like that? But as I research that more and more, uh, there are a lot of good scholars that hold to that. And then they start this, and then so they figure uh, 1,150 days starting from this point and brings you out to this point. Look, you can do your own study, but a lot of other very good scholars say, no, it really is 2,300 days. Okay? But the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, Gabriel says to Daniel, therefore seal up the vision. For it refers to many days in the future. Daniel, I've given you the vision. I've explained it to you. But seal it up. Because it's not for you. This is a prophecy about many years into the future. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Daniel was so overcome 
by the implications of this vision. Not that he didn't understand it. He, he, he couldn't get his mind around what it was going to ultimately mean for all the suffering of the Jewish people in the future. This is what made him physically ill. He fainted when he heard the interpretation of the vision and how it was going to affect his beloved Jewish people, the suffering that was coming. Well, he, he physically faints and is ill for many days after. Um, however, he managed to pull himself together and went about the king's business. He was, uh, he was uh, working for the king. God would add further details of this vision later on in chapter 11. All right. But until then, Daniel got on with his work and pondered these things in his heart. You know, it wasn't easy to be a prophet back then and to have things revealed to you. So a lot of times, ignorance is kind of bliss, you know. I, I'm kind of glad I don't know all the workings. I mean, I don't know any of the workings. I'm kind of glad, though, that I don't know all the workings. You know, if God said, Phil, would you like to, me to show you what really is going on in the world? Do you, I, I, Lord, I'm not sure I want to see that, you know. Let me pull the curtain so you see, you see what really is going on, the evil. You know what? I'll just leave it to you, Lord, to handle it. I, I don't really want to know. But we have to know some of it, right? Because some of it affects us, prophecy. Uh, but it wasn't easy to be a prophet back in those days and to learn things that you rather probably would rather not have known about. Uh, but this is all going to be re repeated and amplified in uh, chapter 11, so we'll wait till we get there to see more of it. So, uh, God willing, we will pick up verse uh, chapter 9 next time. And... Um, uh, I don't know if we'll get to, to verses 24 to 27 next week. We might, but um, those are incredible verses with regard to prophecy. So uh, we'll get to them eventually. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, how incredibly detailed your word is. And this isn't anything compared to what was coming. But Lord, thank you that you have shown us clearly that you are God, that you are outside of time, that you know the end from the beginning, and your word tells us things that are going to come to pass. Many have already, already have come to pass, many of the things you've spoken in your word. But the Lord, we know that much is still future, and if all the things that you have talked about that were, you know, were going to happen, and they have happened already in our lifetime, well when we see all those things that have already taken place that you've talked about, um, there's no reason for us to doubt for one second that the things that are yet future will not come to pass exactly as you have said. So Lord, give us grace to be prepared, to be watching, to be vigilant, that we are always looking for your return, Lord, always ready, serving you, and so on, that we're not asleep in the light, as so many are, because they don't know prophecy. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to continue to bless our studies in this incredible, incredible book. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.